TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This year is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Isaac Mizrahi about why he loves fashion and why he does so many things outside of fashion. I'm not that interested in mastery. I get a little bored. You know, I kind of want to move along and do the next thing. Here's Debbie Millman. In preparing for this interview, I did a little Google experiment. I did a search for Isaac Mizrahi is and got thousands of results. Here are a few. Isaac Mizrahi is a busy man. Isaac Mizrahi is a married man. Isaac Mizrahi is a force to be reckoned with in the world of high design. Isaac Mizrahi is a slob. Isaac Mizrahi is a floral, fruity fragrance for women. Isaac Mizrahi is a fan of unconventional challenges. It's clear that there are lots of Isaac Mizrahis out there, but the one and only fashion designer, writer, performer, actor, and TV personality has collected himself and is here with me now in the flesh to talk about at least a few of them. Isaac Mizrahi, welcome to Design Matters. So great to be here. It's so Debbie. good to see you. <laughs> well, I should start by saying I've known you for a long time, and you're a couple of things, too. <laughs> well, what can you say? Yeah, you know? So you're not a slob, okay? Um, well, so really, you're a slob? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess you could call me a slob. I do have my slovenly moments, yeah. Now, mm-hmm. I, I don't ever remember seeing you slovenly. Your apartment has always been gorgeous, yeah. as far as I can remember. Well, it's like that Shakespearean thing where someone who's so evil also has a really pure, beautiful side, you know, and vice versa. Ah. Yeah. I am a complete organization, neat freak. But on the other side of that, I can go for days with just kind of lying in the same spot, getting bed sores, watching, you know, Real Housewives marathons. Oh, my you know? God. Me, yeah. too. And yeah, I am an obsessive, true. compulsive organizer. Yeah. I mean, you but, know, so everyone has their moments. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wow. I think that's healthy. Don't you? <laughs> I, I'd like to think so. And I will go further. I'm not kidding. This is a theory that I have. I think that it's in those times that really stylish people are at their most stylish. 
How about that? Oh, I love that. I know that's the truth because that's who you really are. So it isn't the way you kind of wear your couture, like Alexander McQueen gown with like, you know, hair that you get done by Garen before you go. That's not that's easy, right? It's when you're actually being a slob in bed watching the housewives. If you have the impulse to put lipstick on and you know, I don't know what little furry slippers that are cute. Seriously, that's when you are your most stylish. Well, I do have a really nice pair of Vera Wang pajama bottoms that I live in. You see what I'm saying? I, I, yes. I'd like to think that that makes me stylish, but there are times when I realize that I haven't gotten out of those Vera Wang pajama bottoms since Friday and it's Sunday night. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, not to belabor the point, but my hair takes on incredibly <laughs> chic, kind of perukish, you know, 18th century yes. powdered wigish kind of you know, forms when I'm yeah. in bed for that long. Yes, that mine takes I think epic are fabulous. proportions. And I want to stop everything and, you know, hire Stephen Mizell to come and take my picture at that moment. <laughs> Call you know? me and I'll come and do it for you. Okay. I also want to say congratulations. I don't think I've Thank seen you. you since you married your husband, <gasps> Arnold Germer. Right. Arnold so, Germer. So, so mm. wonderful. I know. It's really wonderful. You found wonderful. true love. Really. And all I do is talk about it. You so, know? I mean, because you should. You should be shouting it from the rooftops. True love. I never thought I would. You know, I don't know, because my f- career and my kind of crazy insecurities between the career thing and the insane kind of pessimism that I live with on a daily basis, I never thought that I would be as lucky as I have been in meeting Arnold and then kind of engaging with him and then discovering that he was like the love of my life, you know, because it took quite a doing. We met, I have no shame, on the street. I was walking my dog, and we just met. And you know what that means, right? We oh, met. Serendipity. Take it where you Beshert. will. Beshert. Beshert. But anyway, the point is that we were together for a little while, and then we broke up for a very long time, for years. And then something brought us back together. You know, this idea that I couldn't stop thinking about him, and that, I guess, he couldn't stop thinking about me. And he had moved to Santa Fe, and he totally broke from, we broke from each other, and he came back. You know, it just happened that way. I have to tell you, I had the great, not only this kind of like belief that it would happen, but that was fueled by the greatest psychic who ever lived. Christopher Renstrom. No, Maria Napoli. She told me again and again and again that it was going to happen. It was going to happen. It was going to happen. And I didn't think so. There were times and blah, blah. And she just kept insisting. And it's the truth. And so she told you that you were going to meet somebody, fall madly in love, break up. He would go away. You would go to your side of the world. And then you'd come back together. And so who proposed to who? Well, you know what? It was singularly unromantic event, this event. It was basically we were sort of waiting for it to be legal. And, you know, we were saying to each other, darling, as soon as it's legal, we will get married. And then the day it was announced... We were like, well, congratulations, darling. We're getting married. It was one of those moments. It was like a pre-arranged moment. And then when we did it, it was so sweet because we just went to City Hall and did it. What did you one, wear? I wore jeans and it, like a charcoal gray sweater and a polo shirt, you know, and a veil. I forgot to mention that. No. You did? Um, no. It's, it's, we went to City Hall and it was like one of those things out of Petticoat Junction or something where – the same person at one window then puts on another hat and goes to another window. And <laughs> right. then she shows up in the chapel. It was this woman and she kept showing up at all the different windows and, going, and she would say like, go to window three. And then we go to – and there she was. right? <laughs> and then she'd say, well, go into the chapel and just wait. And then she'd come into the chapel and she was the one who actually married us. It was kind of hilarious. And then we just went 
to Bridgehampton that night. It was November, and we went to this little restaurant that we'd never been to before. The 25 years I'd been in Bridgehampton, we never went there. And it was so crazily romantic, like weirdly romantic. Yeah, I think that's so wonderful. Well, let's talk a little bit about your background. Okay. I want to start from the very beginning. Right. So you were born in Brooklyn, right. as was I, by the way, mm. to an observant Jewish family, as was I. We're exactly the same age. I just want to point all of these things out. Wow. So how, how has your observant Jewish background influenced you, if at all? Well, I will say the only way that it has influenced me is in the respect that it was something for me to rebel against. I saw no value in it at all. And do you still feel the same way? I do, yeah. It has not grown on me. And perhaps it's because of the, I would say, terrible formative exposure to those rabbis. You know, they were so mean on a level that was just so wrong. It was so inhuman to be that way to any child, you know. And somehow I didn't feel like a child against it. I felt like a fully formed individual with fully formed opinions. And I don't know what it was. And I can't say which parent I got this from. I knew that my feelings were correct. And I knew what they were telling me had to be bullshit, you know. So you never doubted yourself. You just knew they were wrong. I mean, everybody doubts themselves, Debbie, right? Everybody does. But something, I swear, like, that's what it gave me. It gave me the ability to see beyond what they were telling me. Because I don't know what it was that gave me this knowledge that your feelings don't lie. If you think something, it can be wrong, right? Your thoughts can be wrong, but your feelings cannot be wrong. And I don't know where I ever got that knowledge from. You know, I started taking therapy when I was like in first grade or even before first grade. I was in like, you know, seeing therapists. Maybe I got it from them. Maybe they taught me those people, but I don't remember specifically. Well, that's a great foundation though to have. Yeah. But even if we spoke when I was eight years old going to therapy, I don't remember if we spoke. I remember playing, you know, with blocks in therapy. Why'd you start Uh, therapy so early? Well, because at yeshiva, they just wouldn't admit me back. I was expelled. I was suspended so many times. Then finally, they were like, okay, we can't let him back in here unless you take them to some kind of child psychiatrist. And it was because you were too creative? No, it was because I was too insane. And yes, creative. But I was very disruptive. I was very unhappy. I would have these horrible tantrums where I would like start screaming because I felt somehow like I was in the wrong environment. But I didn't exactly know why I was screaming. I'm saying now it was probably circumstantial, you know. But at the time, it was just full on panic and hysteria. And the only way they could deal with it was to send me home, which is what I wanted. I didn't want to stay. To my parents' credit, at some point around sixth grade, I remember, because I went to Yeshiva Flappish from kindergarten through eighth grade, right? And then when I was in eighth grade, Yeshiva Flappish, I had this amazing English teacher called Sheila Kanowitz, and she actually was the one who was like, oh, maybe not. Maybe you shouldn't go to the Yeshiva High School. Maybe you should try going to – there's a wonderful school in New York called Performing Arts High School, and maybe you should try to go into the acting department. And I did. And she helped me with that. She helped convince my parents to let me go to that school too because that was a big – move for them to let me do that at that time. And and hugely influential. Hugely influential, yes. Now, I read that your father gave you a sewing machine when you were 10 years old, Isaac. Yeah. Did you have an interest in fashion at that time, or was it it sort of like he found it on the street and thought you might like it? No, 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 no. No, my father was a children's wear manufacturer, 
He made little boys' coats and suits. And he had many sewing machines in the basement. And at some point, when I was very little, I kind of commandeered the basement as my design studio and my kind of puppet-making factory because I had a puppet theater in the garage. That's why I learned to sew. But my dad had these unbelievable sewing machines in the basement. At some point when I was like 12, I would say, I babysat for the summer and I saved money and I went with him to Singer because he was a sewing machine expert. He convinced me to buy the beautiful old head, you know, the beautiful old head from like the 1920s or or the turn of the century. And it was a small sewing machine that I worked on by myself for, I don't know, about a year or two. And then he introduced me to his machines, which were already in place in the basement. And they were like crazy. Professional. Yeah, professional power machines. And they were also quite old. He referred to this one as the Iron Horse. It was the Iron Horse. And were they all singers or were they Bernina's? They were all singers. No, no, no. Singers, darling. Singers, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. So you attended the High School of Performing Arts. And when you were 15, you launched your own label. That's right. IS New York. That's right. So what kind of clothes did you create? Well, it was in partnership with this woman called Sarah. Oh, that's the I and the S. Yes, I and S. And her husband also was in the children's manufacturing business. And he had actually a local factory in Brooklyn that helped us make clothes. And she had this woman on the Upper West Side called Loopy. Loopy Benzi was her name. I wonder if she's listening. But Loopy was a good pattern maker. And we went to her and we sort of worked with her and made samples. And she made first samples. And then we made production patterns and made clothes and sold them to Sharivari, if you remember Sharivari. Sadly, I don't think it's even there anymore. I mean, I know it's not in the original location. And then there was another shop we sold to called Off-Broadway. That was another kind of thing on the Upper West Side. And there was a third and a fourth store here and there. We had these little shops that we made clothes for. But what you're talking about, when I was 10, I actually made T-shirts with a friend of mine in the basement. And we sold those to people and to Macy's. I mean, I've always been making clothes. That's incredible. It's a crazy thing. I know. But when you went to the High School of Performing Arts, were you also thinking at that time you might want to be an actor or performer? Yes. I mean, honestly, I think the end goal in my life from when I'm a kid, is the entertainment business too, you know, like more in a funny way. I do believe that entertainment is kind of, I don't exactly know what I can say to prove that other than, you know, there's that movie Unzipped, which I was very instrumental in making. And also I had a television show for a number of years. So that's really important to me. And also now I appear on QVC all the time, which is kind of a a one little outlet for that Yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. I want to talk to you about that a little later on in the interview. But you would think that for me, fashion is a form of entertainment, you know? That's what I've been saying since I started my career as a fashion designer, and that's true. But entertainment is a form of entertainment. You know, it's like theater and opera and Shakespeare and whatever else, that is what I kind of am going towards and making, I'm I'm hoping to make a movie someday or a few movies someday. Well, I think that fashion, in the same way that movies or art or poetry, they transport you. They do. They take you to a different place. They help you sort of be a better you and the best possible way that we connect with each other is through these things, through these experiences. They're all experiences that we share. Right. Absolutely. If we're putting something on, we're not just experiencing it ourselves. We're also sharing that with... I mean, it's a form of 
relief, right? It's a relief from strife, everyday strife. You buy something beautiful and new to wear and it just relieves in that moment in the same way that watching a marathon of, you know, the Real Housewives of Atlanta does, you know? Well, I remember the first time that I walked into your little shop in Bergdorf's in the 80s. And I hadn't met you at that point. And I walked in and I was transported. I was really moved. And Bergdorf's was an aspiration for me. I couldn't afford the clothes there. Maybe when they went on double markdown. And that's when I bought a lot of the clothes that you made back then, when they were on double markdown. But it was something that really gave you a sense of who you could be on your best day. And I used to just go in there and walk around and feel the clothes and try them on. And everybody was so lovely to me Mm -hmm. in Bergdorf's. But you had that line in Bergdorf's when you were 25 years old. Yeah, 26. Oh, 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 I'm so sorry. No, because I launched my company when I was 25. I started it. And then it was a full year before I actually had a show, but actually was shipping to Bergdorf's. It's true, right? That was before I had a collection. And they were, you know, they loved it. They came in and looked at it and they liked it and they bought it and they had it in the store and it sold really well from the very beginning. I remember watching Murphy Brown. I think it was the first season yeah. of Murphy Brown yes. and Candace Bergen wore uh, all your clothes. A lot of clothes. Yeah, and, she was and great. And I actually found one of the outfits that she was wearing on Double Markdown on Bergdorf's <laughs> and ended up getting it and just wore it like every day and felt like I was the most fashionable woman in New York at that time. Wow. Oh, that's so great. I know. That's great. I know. That's a great thing. So, In 2002, you introduced a new line, which really changed the fashion world, Um, Isaac Mizrahi for Target. Yes. And and so what made you decide to do that? Why Target? Well, Target's amazing. It's so accessible. It makes all products accessible, and it has a smarter and a funnier personality than than some of the other big box stores. Do you know what I mean? Mm I wouldn't even say it's quirky. I just think it has a, a humor about it as opposed to like, you know, Kmart is not does not really have the greatest sense of humor about itself, you know. And I love Kmart and I really appreciate what they do. But Target is everything that that is plus style and art direction and humor. And I'll tell you what, when first we got the inkling that they were interested in talking to me, it was done through an agent. And he said, oh, it's amazing. There are so many people who – we would kind of counter and make this a better deal, et cetera. I'm sure they worked it to get a good deal out of it, but I kept making it clear to them that I wasn't interested in doing it anywhere else and that it was really only Target that I felt kind of psychologically in America could pull something like this off. It wasn't any of those others at the time. You know what I mean? Now I feel like everyone's kind of in that business, but at the time it didn't feel like they were and it felt like Target had a good shot at doing it. So you described your line then as controlled and glamorous, elegant, distilled, refined, inspired by decadence and the diversity of New York City. But you've also said that your muse, so to speak, was and maybe still is the woman you'd be if you were prettier. (laughs) Yeah, this is true. I think you're very pretty. You do? Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, you know, maybe if I had a bigger cup size or something. (laughs) I'm just saying, you know, if I actually looked good in women's clothes is what I mean. But I don't. I don't look good in women's clothes. But I will say that, you know, things change so much. It's like, you know, you start off as something and hopefully – you evolve into something else and you keep doing so throughout. And that's only possible if you don't know stuff in advance. You have to kind of – what did Napoleon said? He said something like, 
you commit to something and then you find out, right? You have to commit to something to find out about something, right? Not that Napoleon is a great person to be quoting, but, um, but you <laughs> Role know, model, like, right? exactly. But, um, but what I'm saying is at some point you discover what you're really into about the subject. And what I'm really into about the subject of clothes is, I mean, I, I you know, Debbie, like, I can never tell what is more important. Design, right? And I'm not just talking about styling. I'm talking about like actually controlling a seam that goes on a body and a textile that goes on a body and a thought, you know, like the greatest luxury to me is thinking. So if the thinking about a design is right, right, that. I'm not talking about, oh, how cool you're showing like a great big sweater tucked into pantyhose with like, you know, crushy boots with a little kitten heel. I mean, that's, I love that too. But that's what, is out there. What isn't out there as much, I don't think, what's rare and what I think people really love is design. So that's very important to me to like actually invent designs. But also the other side of it is like a woman, who that woman is and the story of her life, the psychology of her life. That's been, for me, the most compelling part of it, really. You know, the design thing is gratifying in the way cooking something wonderful is very gratifying. Or figuring out a recipe yourself. I mean, come on, right? If you come up with a good recipe for something on your own, so that's pretty gratifying when you can actually. But the thing that really makes me crazy that I love so much is when I actually can like reach out to this woman and go like, I'm going to change your life in some way. This is going to make your life a little bit better. And to me, it's so, so, so very exciting when a lot of people can be influenced by something that I do, a lot of people. And so you, it's a kind of a trade-off, and it's a little tragic. But to me, the joy and the gift of it outweighs the tragedy. You What's know what the I tragedy, mean? though? Well, you know, I don't really make this couture collection so much anymore. I don't. I could always go back to that. But I do feel, honestly, like between you and me, the real couture thing, that real kind of like edge, 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 is, I'm not kidding you, I think it's something that comes and goes, right? I'm not going to say it's a young person's game because there are plenty of people who discover their brilliance late in life and they have a moment and they show what they do and then everyone's influenced by it and then you move on. You know what I mean? And like you become a master and I'm not that interested in mastery. I don't care that much about mastery. I get a little bored. You know, I kind of want to move along and do the next thing. Well, it seems like you have constant different paths that you want to take. So you take one path and then that influences the next path and that influences yes. the next path. Yep. And it's it's interesting because I also like to do a lot of different things. And every now and then I wonder if my diversity of things that I like to yeah. do somehow yes. – uh, minimizes the mastery of any one. It does. It does, Debbie. That's the tragedy. This is what I'm talking about. You know, yeah. my best friend is Mark Morris, and he is a fucking master. I mean, you know who Mark Morris yes, is. Yes, of course. The that man he's like, an amazing... wakes up and just brushes his teeth and in the sink is brilliant. I mean, like he's absolutely <laughs> a genius. There's no tragedy about that. Like he wakes up and makes up those dances every day and he makes up class every day and it's beyond, right? And I look at him and I go like, wow, if you just stick to something and you do it and do it and do it, you come to that point, right? I can't do it. I can be his best friend and I can admire it. But it's not my fate. Speaking of doing things in a masterful way, you've extended your lines from 
clothes to accessories, shoes, housewares, bedding, pet products. Mm -hmm. In a video interview on Yahoo, you very poignantly stated, even when it's fabulous and successful, it's never easy. I don't even know what I mean. Even when it's fabulous and successful, it's never easy. (laughs) No, of course. But why would it be easy when it's fabulous and successful? God, that's hard. You mean but like so many people aspire you mean to get out to of that. bed or something? Or no, just just you know, I think people perceive that when somebody is successful, when somebody has it all, mm-hmm. that then it's sort of easy street. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Right, no, that's when it gets hardest. Are you right, kidding? Because you have to keep Absolutely. maintaining it, you have to keep creating. Yeah. But I do many diverse things. You know what I mean? And so, and I and I do take pride in every single thing I do. I'm trying to convince you that this is not a tragedy. Okay, that's all. (laughs) Me or you? (laughs) Both of us. I'm I'm telling you, people who can do more than one thing, not at once, but just more than one thing. Absolutely. Well, speaking of more than one thing, let's talk about some of the other things that you do aside from fashion. All right. Um, You're a singer and a performer. Yes, I am. You have starred in your own cabaret show called Les Mis. Right. It was actually Um, not. It was an off-Broadway show, and then. I did a few different cabaret shows at like Joe's Pub and like, you know, a few different rooms around the city. Yes. And I feel crazy when I do that. I do. I feel like a little crazy because, you know, like, I know, but I am a harsh, 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 harsh critic. So I think everyone in my audience is kind of has their arm folded and their head cocked looking at me going, really? And. I am in the front row doing that to myself, you know. But would you so, be doing that if you had started first as a singer and no, then became a fashion designer? Because no, then no. you'd be doing that about being a fashion designer. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of what I do when I see like the Kardashians or something doing clothes. And right. yet some of the Kardashian clothes are really good. So it all comes down to like balls, you know. Yes. Do you have the balls to like – Put yourself on a stool in a cabaret every once in a while and just go like, hey, everybody, I'm going to do this. If you like it, you like it. If you don't like it, you know, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not, you know, I'm not here to please everybody. Right. You know, if one can live with this diverse opinion of oneself, it's better. Then you can really do what you want. You know, if you let critical dialogue and, you know, like things people say about you stop you, then it's a shame. Do you ever get afraid of doing new things? I mean, sure. you, you've said that if you do one thing all the time, you get very bored. Yeah. But when you were asked about your cabaret show or your shows at Joe's Pub, mm-hmm. you declared that you think that a little discomfort is a good thing. A lot of discomfort is a good thing. I'm terrified by discomfort. Well, here's the thing. I'm more terrified by this kind of stagnation. Like, then I really can't get out of bed. You know, if you think I'm depressive and pessimistic and whatever. And you may not think so, but you can ask my husband. You can ask Marisa Gardini, my business partner. Like we always joke, like it's her job. Forget about like making deals and like making sure people do what they're supposed to do. Her job is to make sure that I am not in the gutter all day long with like a cup, you know, and like glasses begging for like change. Oh, I I Seriously. And the thing is, the only reason I'm saying that is because that's the game. Right. The game is to keep your spirits at a point where you can actually function great. Right. And to have balls to go like, that's it. I have to do this. So let's talk about your current QVC show okay. for a moment. It's right. so good. I know. I um, love it. I love it so much. <laughs> and, and first of all, I read that you feel that the one of your happiest places to be, speaking of happy versus depressive, yeah. um, is in a TV studio. Yeah, is that true? Is. Of course. Because I don't know why I feel so protected. Like if the world falls apart, somehow like a TV studio will keep functioning, you know. 
I mean it. That's funny, right? And there'll be someone mixing the show and like directing the show and going, go. You know, it's like, it's a fantastic thing. I don't know what it is. I think it's like that intense thrill that comes. And and, and by the way, I don't know why because you're not preparing anything and you're not singing and you're not telling jokes. It's just this wonderful it's rapport. Improv. Yeah, it's, it's total improv. And the chemistry between you and Sean, yes. oh my God, it's and crazy. And you always have like this blouse or this pair of shoes to fall back on. So Sean Killinger, I recently watched an episode and you and Sean had one of the best conversations yeah. I've ever seen on television. <laughs> oh, it was no, it, it was so fabulous. No, it was. It was. Sean had a great one-liner about a woven engineered paisley print blouse you had designed. And she first she says woven schwoven, which, you know. I I just wanted to die right there and then. But then she described the shirt as – this is the greatest description of a shirt ever. She described the shirt as a vacation in a shirt, a flowy, blousy, totally grease chic, wispy, beachy moment over white denim. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what gives her the right to kind of appear and tell us what we should buy because she's a genius in her own way, Sean. I just have to say it again. A flowy, blousy, (laughs) totally grease chic, wispy, beachy moment over white denim. She's right about that. She was right. She got it. a gorgeous shirt, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But there is something so powerful about being on the air at QVC and really knowing that your product is great. And knowing that they can't get it anywhere else and knowing that they're actually watching and loving it. They're loving it. The other really interesting dichotomy about the show is that I also learn a lot when I'm watching it. So I learned that Queen Victoria brought Paisley's over to America. Well, didn't she? No, I, she brought them to England. To I'm England. Sorry. To yeah, England. I'm exactly, sorry. That's right. my fault. It's my fault. It's not a, this isn't a planet thing. I hope that's true about Queen Victoria. Well. Let's make it true. We'll make okay? it true. Yes. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about how people find their own personal style. And I just recently reread your book, How to Have Style. And in the book, you state, before you can think about having style, you have to learn to look in the mirror and like what you see. Too many women are taught to hate the way they look and are are encouraged to change everything about themselves from their lips to their bust sizes. Why does this happen, Isaac? Why do women have so much self-loathing? Well, um, gosh. I know. It's a big question. Um, One thing I will say, and I really believe this, if everybody actually responded honestly to their surroundings, everybody would be stylish. I made this statement on QVC the other night and I got a lot of tweets, like a crazy tweet situation went on. And I meant this for real. Like Sean was like, how do you know if like two prints work together or a pinch and a stripe? And I was like, here's how you know if you like it. It's really simple. If you like it, you know, um, and I keep saying this and I say it in my book. It's like, you know, you walk into a bakery and you know which of the pastries you don't want and you know which are the ones you do want, right? And then you go like, no, that, right? Somehow we are endowed with the ability to know what food we really want to eat at that moment, right? And I don't know why, but like we all have these impulses to the clothes we want to wear and the things we want to see put together and the people we want to be. But somehow we always stop ourselves. Right? It, so we're afraid of being judged. We're afraid of being rejected, yeah. bullied. I don't know. I don't know what it is that stops us. You know, it's like if you like it, darling, it's right. Period. I can't think of another answer for that. 
I can't I, think of I'm going to tell answer. you something that is so going to depress you if you haven't already heard this. But I read that the reason that there isn't more experimental fashion now in things like the red carpet for the Oscars is because everybody feels that they're going to be made fun of and bullied on yeah. Twitter. Yeah. And, and you know, thought of in you know, <gasps> wow. the worst dressed or, you know, who, who wore it best and that they're going to lose. And I just thought, oh, my God, we're sort of beating originality out of people. Yeah. And we're shaming them to be mediocre yes. or mainstream. Most people, you know. You have to we'll go always there. have Bjork. <laughs> Bjork. And to some extent, the ones that actually rise up and become these iconic people are the ones who are able to take those remarks, you know. I just read Lena Dunham's book. Did you read it? Yes. It's so smart. What you get from that book is that that girl like sort of doesn't necessarily care so much what most people say or think about her. As a matter of fact, she's okay with hostility, you know? And I don't know if that's parenting. It's I don't good know parenting. What, I don't know exactly what that is, but <laughs> that's why she's who she is. You know, that's why she is such a smart, wonderful artist. So I want to close with something today that you've written that really resonates with me. And I think so many people, both men and women that I know, um, you write, if anyone ever tries to tell you you're not pretty or that you have no sense of style, don't believe that person for a minute. Isaac, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. Thank you, Debbie Millman. Thank you for having me on Design Matters. Oh, my God. You can find out more about Isaac Mizrahi just by turning on the TV or by Googling him or by going to his website, IsaacMizrahi.com. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.